Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And we've spoken on Triple R many times now about Australia's relationship with Timor-Leste and especially the protracted negotiations over Timor Sea oil. In these conversations, one name has come up regularly and that's Bernard Caleri. Bernard is a former Attorney General of the ACT. He was for many years legal counsel to the East Timor government. He's represented Witness K. In recent years, the Commonwealth DPP has charged him with conspiracy to breach the Intelligence Services Act and intelligence officers have raided his home and office. This morning, we have a chance to speak with Bernard himself. Uh, he's written a detailed account of Australia's dealings with Timor-Leste going back to before the Second World War and covering the Whitlam era and other significant periods in this important relationship. His book is called Oil Under Troubled Water, Australia's Timor Sea Intrigue. And welcome to Triple R, Bernard. It's great to have you. Good morning, Kalia. It's great to be there. And so, Bernard, what was it exactly that you were hoping for readers to understand about Australia's relationship with Timor-Leste out of your new book? It's just not a story of intrigue, Dylan, or underarm dealing. It's a story of how we've really abandoned our real historical purpose as a new democracy. I mean, our ancestors, particularly in Melbourne, where you ride past the eight-hour working day monument, and you've always been in Victoria, uh, a progressive state, um, you know, and our forebears pioneered the place and fought in the wars. Um, we, We... we we haven't developed a, a proper approach to the islands in our north, to our north and in the Pacific. We want to either patronise them or control them. We we haven't had a grown up foreign policy. We've had a policy uh, uh, after the Second World War directed from London and Washington, and then when we moved away and realised we were pretty well on our own, we got ourselves involved in the Vietnam War, and then we set about stopping self-determination in Papua, West Papua and East Timor. We, 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 were, we had this idea, that domino theory, that the communists were moving south, and we misinterpreted nationalist movements for communist movements. We did that in Vietnam, and we now realise they're a bit of a communist state, but they're a nationalist state. I mean, you go to their museum in Hanoi and... On the left-hand side, they've got the B-52 plane they shot down in Vietnam War. On the right-hand side, they've got the dioramas of the times they've defeated every Chinese invasion. So the idea that China was moving south and was going to hop-step the islands and get down to our northern uh, approaches was just simply naive, wrong, and it was promoted by Kissinger, of course, as Secretary of State of the United States in the 70s that led to that awful betrayal of us when we encouraged the anti-communist generals of Indonesia to occupy then Portuguese Timor, East Timor. And earlier in the 60s, our former foreign minister and attorney general, Garfield Bowick, did the same with with Papua, figuring that we wouldn't want to let the locals uh, get self-determination. They'll probably become communists, so... Best we put 
the generals from Indonesia in charge. Now, that's the mainstream story. But in the in the British archives, I found where when Australia was at the peace conference in Versailles after the First World War, uh, I, I found that we had given secret instructions to our then Prime Minister, Billy Hughes, to make sure we got as many islands to our north as we could to give us a shield. You know, in those days, a shield against the the so-called racist yellow peril. And uh, it was a bit of a shock for Australia when the British government used the Japanese Navy to escort uh, World War I troop ships to Egypt because uh, Japan was an ally in the First World War. Now, at the end of the war, we got the German islands below the equator of uh, Germany at the peace conference, and Japan got the islands in Micronesia that America now has, uh, or had. And uh, we've been a colonial power. Let's just call a spade a spade. We've, we've imperialistically wanted to put in place to our north powers that we believe were better for our safety. And I think that's really... It's a, it's a really good point to kind of get into some more detail, Bernard, that uh, I think many in Australia yeah. wouldn't think of Australia as being a colonial power, and yet we have been. And I, I wonder um, how you and how and when you got involved with advising the East Timor government. Well, Carlia, when I was probably about your age, I was trained. Um, I did some training with an Australian intelligence agency and and there was an ex-World War II commando. I mean, I'm 75 now. It wasn't too many years after the Second World War. And he filled us with stories of how the East Timorese had helped, saved in many respects, the trapped Australian Army group in East Timor and how wonderful the Timorese had been and their Portuguese-trained priests were martyred. Uh, you know, the, the Japanese exerted fearful reprisals on the Timorese for assisting uh, the Australians. So I grew up on that story. Years and years later, I then heard and saw and had some privileged access to the betrayal and sellout of East Timor we did for the reasons I just explained. I was appalled. So when I came back to Australia and left the service, I offered my services in the early 80s to the Timorese. And uh, I've I, I worked with them for 30-odd years, helping them. We, you, you know, they may have lost more than 200,000 of their people during the Indonesian occupation, but they never resorted to bombs abroad. They conducted a humane resistance. One thing, uh, Kalia, that amazed me when I finally got in, because the Indonesians wouldn't allow me for the years to get a visa, uh, when I did get there in '99. The Indonesian Army's married quarters, that is, the families of the Indonesian soldiers, had, a, had just a minor wire fence around it in Dili that had never been the sort of mutual atrocities that had occurred and that occur awfully in the Middle East. So all through those years, I wasn't alone in impressing upon the Timorese. They would get our support so long as there were no mutual atrocities. And um, their leader, their leaders, and uh, towards the end, Chanana Guzmao conducted a humane resistance. There have been studies of that. And the thing that struck me most of all is you could fight a ruthless invader without killing their, their, their families. 
um, it's a great story, Carlia, and I'm pleased that I've been able to help them. But it's your generation now got to take over. And just like we, we, we owe the first Australians, we've apologised, Kevin Rudd did, and we're giving up land titles and that. We, we owe the East Timorese. We, we owe them. On the flyleaf of my book, it's got, you've got Geoffrey Robertson, a great Australian who lives in London, practices as a lawyer, human rights lawyer. He says East Timor is on our conscience. Well, my generation have been involved in that betrayal. It's your generation, your guys, your listeners now who've got to do something it's, about the way we've treated the Timorese. It's a really interesting point, Bernard, because we should remind listeners, we're speaking with Bernard Caleri all about his brand new book, Oil Under Troubled Water, Australia's Timor Sea Intrigue. And that question of Australia's self-image in relation to East Timor is a really crucial consideration, I think, because Australia, it feels like, has been quite quick to, you know, take credit for the leadership and, and good work that was done to help secure independence in 1999. But this came, I mean, as you've just documented, after essentially turning a blind eye to, to atrocities, Indonesia's brutality in the region and a long kind of colonial history in that region as well. Do you feel that, I guess, together with the, um, you know, widely aired contestations and Australia's poor behaviour over the oil and gas fields in the Timor Gap, and particularly over, you know, your association with Witness K and the spying scandal that's kind of engulfed um, Australia for, for quite a few years now. Do you feel like that narrative of Australia's good neighbourliness has been shattered in the popular imagination? Yes. I mean, uh, with First Australians, we have those horrible things like the Mile Creek Massacre, uh, they mark and and their signposts of our cruelty. Uh, it wasn't just a breach of trust, uh, Dylan, to uh, the Timorese. It was a breach of trust to ordinary Australians for this secret dealing to occur. Um, you know, I was out there for the Timorese for 30-odd years at the barricades and, and helping and defending them and when they were arrested at demonstrations and, and, and representing them in court. <clears throat> I never once uh, got tapped on the shoulder when I was out, out having a, a coffee saying, how, how could you do that? But when I've done particularly nasty trials, murder trials and that, you know, people do say, uh, I even got that message at home a few times, um, well, how could you, how could you do that? Uh, how could you defend that sort of thing? I've never had it. I don't think ordinary Australians have been involved in this neo-colonialism. I don't think any of us have shared in that wealth and spoil of gas and oil. It's gone into particular sections of the corporate sector, mostly overseas, mostly to United States investors. We're not part of it. So it's a breach of trust to put that evil on our conscience. We now all owe the Timorese, but we never got anything out of it ourselves. That's the myth about us stealing their gas and oil. What our governments did, successive governments, we stole it but handed it on to the corporations. The ordinary health uh, tax, uh, the ordinary Australian who needed support in the health and education area, agricultural research, didn't get anything, Dylan, next to nothing. We got a few royalties, but billions and billions and billions have gone into a few corporate, immensely rich companies. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not on the far left about 
corporations and that, I'm straight down the centre. And, and as far as I'm concerned, the, the, the guilty conscience lies in several particular areas, which I can't go into because of this prosecution at the moment, but it's not us. And we've got to... But as Jeffrey Robinson says, Timor's on our conscience. We've got to do something about it. And um, uh, I... I, I think this is their last-ditch effort to cover up it is, this, I mean, this trial of witness came myself. As you say, I mean, we, we sort of obviously can't go into the specific um, no. situation with your court case and that kind of thing, but the, the, that matter, the, the kind of spying allegations and, and what is alleged to have gone on, do you see that type of behaviour as in any way surprising given the history of Australia's behaviour towards Timor-Leste? Well, it's, you know, from a legal perspective, Dylan, you might appreciate lawyers are particularly offended by it because we had established a joint venture with the Timorese. It was an unequal contest, of course. Um, you know, the, the gas fields right close to their coast. We're 450 k's away, but we, we, we get the majority share of things. But um, the, the, the real test of our conscience is what we can do to make good what restitution what reparations we should give that's that's the issue yeah, and I noticed, um, I mean, you mentioned Jeffrey Robertson's forward to your book and there is also a note there from Steve Brax, um, former um, uh, Premier of this state in Victoria, and he has also advised the, the Timor government and he writes that he was shocked to hear about um, the extraction of helium and, and some of the things that have gone on with that in the Timor Sea. And I wonder, with, with individuals such as Steve Brax wondering and not knowing what's happened in the relationship. What can we do as a as a community? Is it about um, ensuring our federal government does the right thing? Is that our role? Well, we need an absolute three sixty degree turn in foreign policy. The wrong people, largely the wrong people, have led foreign policy, and our foreign ministers just only stand knee high to genuine foreign policy makers they've generally been uh, like supplicants to the corporate sector they've they've been scurrying to corporate boardrooms you know savoring the chrome and the leather instead of giving us a fully independent foreign policy we had a fully independent one we helped frame the united nations charter during the latter parts of world war ii we, our country was so far above its weight in drafting the UN Charter. In uh, Our foreign minister was the third president of the UN um, Assembly, General Assembly. We, we were a country out there. We wanted to have a new world. We backed Roosevelt. We were going to deal with the vestiges of colonialism. We were going to be an exemplary state in our region. And that went on until the fall of the Chifley government in 1949. And then, uh, under our foreign minister and ambassadors in Washington, we fell into line with Washington and Whitehall in, in London. And we, we, we failed to continue an independent foreign policy that we had developed in after World War II. Now, Menzies comes out OK. He, he, he was reminding his cabinet we should give surf determination to East uh, Portuguese Timor if we could but then the 
Foreign Affairs Department, External Affairs that was in there, advised Menzies that best best we allow Indonesia to take over uh, Portuguese Timor. And Barwick, of course, was not only Foreign Minister Garfield Barwick, um, but um, Attorney General, and he was dealing with oil exploration requests for companies in the Timor Sea, and he saw, he says, and I'm only dealing with the documents, these are not my views, the documents speak for themselves. The US Assistant Secretary of State in 1962 asked Australia if we would lead Portuguese team order independence the way we were doing it in Papua New Guinea under a trusteeship. And so we were a colonial power so far as the UN was concerned in Papua New Guinea, we were giving reports to the UN uh, colonial decolonialisation committee, and the Prime Minister of Portugal asked Menzies rhetorically, "Well, do you want to take over Portuguese Timor? Do you want to, you know, could you run it?" And Menzies accepted advice from external affairs, grudgingly, hesitantly, that no we should let it slide over to the Indonesians. And that was because Portugal was a maritime power. They were pretty clear on international law. They, they had a long tradition of international law. And Barwick knew, and as his advisors knew, it would be easier to deal with the Indonesians than the Portuguese. So, uh, you know, the documents now uh, are poignant, sad, sad to read, and <clears throat> that's the sellout. You know, everyone blames Whitlam for the shallow deal he made with the corrupt dictator of um, Indonesia, Sahato. But really, Sir Garfield Barwick's decision to reject the United States' requests that we help self-determination in East Timor was the real uh, awful turning point where we sold out on our post-war ambition to be an exemplary country in our region. But now, as you know, the Pacific countries, they were recently told by our Prime Minister that they could come here and pick fruit if the, the seas get too high. You know, we, 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 just, we, we just cannot adopt a fully grown, grown-up, honest policy towards our region. Bernard Caleri is our guest speaking um, about all about Australia's history of engagement with Timor-Leste and our region and this is the subject of his brand new book Oil Under Troubled Water Australia's Timor Sea Intrigue and I'm interested in your thoughts on what the state of things is now because I mean you write of course about the post-independence period um, and the supposed sort of good faith negotiations Australia was supposed to enter enter into with East Timor to um, help to ensure their economic uh, stability and, and, and success and so on. Given the, the embarrassment that's kind of ensued following the, um, the spying, spying allegations have been aired, there's been the negotiation of a maritime border, do you see much scope for the relationship and Australia's behaviour and, and, and the way that we see and, and treat East Timor as at all changing as a result of that? No. It's not changing, I'm, I'm fully informed. There's an abiding resentment in East Timor, particularly in the younger generation, about the unfair tactics that included uh, the recent treaty negotiations where Australia's got away, on behalf of the corporations, with the helium, the theft of the helium 
from the, that share of the helium that should have been due to East Timor. See, it wasn't, as we found out in 2007-8, it wasn't just about gas. Helium is just as valuable. It's a finite resource. It's vitally needed in the nuclear industry. Every MRI you have, Dylan, has needs helium. It's, there's only 15 or so plants in the world. It used to be all coming from uh, Wyoming and Texas. Helium exists trapped under the earth in some pockets only, and there was a vast pocket of helium under the Timor Sea. No one told the Timorese. They didn't know. And Australia connived to alter the definition of petroleum in the treaty treaties made to take out the words and inerts. All over the world, petroleum is defined. Internationally accepted definition is that petroleum is a petroleum hydrocarbon, including all inert gases. Helium is an inert gas, as your listeners know. And we took the words and inerts out, and we knew that was out, and we never told the Timorese, and only after everything was signed did they f we find out years later that uh, those words had been taken out. And then, of course, Australia got its first helium plant, and the helium was sold off to guess who? It was given as waste gas to the corporations, the contractors. The yeah. revenue did not come to Australians. And, and corporations too that, you know, incidentally, former politicians are still um, very much involved with. Um, we, we don't have long left, Bernard, but I want to just sort of end on what life is like for you now. Obviously, I mean, your life has been thrown into disarray um, around your association with, with Witness K and so on. What is life like for you and, and what's kind of the immediate uh, next steps in your case? Well, I... I... I, I, I was the approved advisor for Witness K. He's not, in the popular sense, a whistleblower. Uh, he was approved by Inspector General of Security to see me, and I didn't have the faintest idea of what Witness K's operational background might have been when um, an appointment was made to see me. And I've acted as a lawyer, and I'm being punished for that. And um, uh, I'm being punished for giving legal advice um, to a troubled uh, soul, um, who I regard as a man of great integrity. And um, I could have stayed in Cambridge, but I, I've come back and I'm going to do my best to um, protect this uh, client. And, uh, well, it's not good, uh, Dylan. Well, speaking personally, uh, I've got seven grandchildren and some of them are Caleri's and you can imagine what's said at school uh, uh, about their grandfather facing jail and things like that. Um, could I ever have imagined I'd be in the dock in the court where I spent my working life as a lawyer? No. I mean, I, I uh, have to uh, apply to myself the medicine I've told so many clients over the years to stay calm, don't let the stress kill you, you, you won't get to trial. I mean, it's... Uh, it's um, it's what's happened in our country, and um, it's your generation that have to fix things up. I'm 75. I don't know how long it's going on for. Years, it'll be years and years because we're going to fight this all the way. I've got a great team of lawyers behind me, and 
I don't believe it's constitutional to have secret trials in this country and um, the, our constitution drawn way back in 1900s and 1901, our constitution says I'm entitled to a jury trial and I don't believe a jury trial is a jury trial if it's not an ordinary open court where the jury can hear the evidence and I know what's being said and the current procedures are suggesting there's going to be evidence closed from me um, and uh, that, that I can't comment, Dylan, further on that issue, but I think they've been over the last two years, while I haven't been able to work as a trial lawyer anymore, we've had about 36 appearances bit by bit. And um, when I was Attorney General here in the ACT, I brought in the Independent Director of Public Prosecutions, and the Commonwealth had one, has one. They just sit in court next to nothing to say. It's all the Attorney General, Christian Porter's uh, officers, uh, pressing for secrecy and uh, national, so-called national security. Um, I, I think integrity and the use of anti-terrorist laws to keep ordinary Australians silent is a sign of the times we live in. The Americans um, went through the McCarthy era and we're going through an era here in Australia uh, and I just have, I have the bad luck to be on that wave of um, repressive you know covers up of dirty political linen as I've called it it's the best I can say under the orders that have been imposed on me. Well we've had the very good luck of having you join us on Triple R Bernard we really appreciate it. Oh, that's fine, Kalia. That's good. And we need to get the message out. <clears throat> and um, Bernard Clary's been our guest. And um, on, on the cover, there's a, uh, a note from Steve Brack saying, essential if difficult reading for all Australians. And he's referring to Bernard's book, Oil Under Troubled Water, Australia's Timor Sea Intrigue. It's out through Melbourne University Press. And um, we appreciate your time, Bernard. We hope to speak to you again. It's a pleasure. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And it's a great pleasure to have Dave Nichols in studio with us, our regular correspondent on all things built environment. And Dave, we can't not ask you about the history of urban planning and how it relates to disease prevention because it's relevant right now. I think it's pretty relevant, yes. Hi, Carly and Dylan. Um, yeah, look, isn't it... It is totally relevant. I mean, the, the history of, uh, you know, urban planning is basically... has its roots in disease prevention, without a doubt. And the way that the city is, is planned out, the way that the city is... or has developed uh, under planning or not under planning is completely related to um, fears of epidemics and, and disease spread... Once the city starts to densify, which I guess is, you know, globally speaking is three or 500 years ago, densify heavily, and there's, there's a lot of people living in really desperate conditions, horrible, you know, the word slum doesn't really cover it, kind of conditions in, in cities, in makeshift conditions, and, um, uh, you know, not, not looked after at all, and also there's also, at the same time, concurrently there's... Uh, a lack of understanding of how d disease spreads anyway, but some kind of, you know, at least people can observe. 
um, it it becomes clear that the the way that the industrial revolution has created cities is really you know it's a it's an absolute recipe for um, rapid disease spread, and uh, so things like for instance. Uh, the great Graham Davison, a wonderful uh, urban historian, a wonderful historian generally, has uh, has written about uh, Australia as the, as the first real suburban nation, and he's talked about how Australia comes comes into being as a nation uh, in um, in the in a period in the nineteenth century when uh, there's a strong not only is there a strong understanding of how disease um, you know um, incubates. Um, and spreads in in highly dense populations, but also there's the technological means to do something about it, which is particularly the creation of fixed rail uh, and automated transport. So a, a city like Melbourne totally grows at the same time as railways you know, come into being, and we have railways from a very early time in the city, and people start to, you know, the people who can afford to get out of the centre of the city use the railway infrastructure to make sure that they get as far away from the centre as possible. And, you know, we talk about social isolation right now and, and probably for most of us in the last few weeks it's the first time we really, you know, come across that, that not the concept, but the, the term. But that's totally what people in suburbia were doing uh, 150 years ago. They were, they were seeking uh, a way to get out of the city, which was, you know, for all kinds of reasons noxious, and into a place where they could be you know, kind of sequestered from their neighbours in the in the natural environment, which was always seen as being a healthy, health-giving kind of um, uh, way to live uh, out in the in a, a manicured or otherwise kind of uh, garden, and um, you know, not not too close to anyone. I mean, there's, there's and now we worry about social isolation in places like um, sprawling suburbs, but now. I know exactly. We, 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 mm. Perhaps today we're looking at that differently, it's and, and for many, for, for many of us, that's that's perhaps a relief. Yeah, no, that's right. Exactly correct. I mean, that's it's. I, th- I mean, obviously, I find it fascinating. I'm sorry, I have this. It's a it's an affliction that I have. My my, there's no cure for my disease, which is I'm interested in everything that goes on, you know, around me, particularly sort of social phenomena. But that twinned with, you know, there's. Another thing that I've been thinking about, um, particularly because um, I'm doing this major research project on the creation of new cities in Australia, and in the, a, a lot of which was and there was a lot of talk about that in the 1970s. And one of the things that early reports were saying was, well, in a new city, you don't you, people won't need to go to an office. You know, there'll there'll be telecommunications. People could stay at home and work at home and stuff like that. And that was that was seen, of course, you know, fifty years ago as being an exciting new dimension to living, and seemed to solve a whole lot of problems. Uh, I think one of the problems it seemed to solve was, you know, getting people around the city. You know, um, so it sort of it, it sort of abnegated the the uh, the need to think a lot about major public transport issues uh, or or transport issues generally, but. But also, um, you know, it, it became clear quite soon after that that people liked that kind of social scenario of going to a workplace. They also like to keep their workplace and their home life separate. So there's, you know, there's a but there's a kind of a a bunch of different ideas that are that are floating around that all of which are appropriate to our current 
situation. And so, as I mean, as you said, following the Industrial Revolution and the way that cities were built and developed, it made conditions very ripe for disease spread and, and yeah. that sort of thing. And obviously, in the 19th century, disease and, and how it was, you know, contagion and that kind of thing wasn't as well understood as it is now. But mm. as people have moved back into city centres, as it's been deemed desirable and safe, have there been big public health initiatives that have made cities that much safer to live in? Well, I think, I mean, yes, in a, but they're not, when you say big, I mean, there's, obviously we live differently from the way people lived, um, you know, in, in the mid-19th century when, mm-hmm. apart from anything else, not only did they not understand how disease was spread, but they didn't know how, they wouldn't have been able to prevent, prevent it if mm-hmm. they had known. Like, you know, they wouldn't have been able to afford to live in that way. They just had, had to take their chance. But so, um, you know, we have 100 thousand different kind of um, health regulations and zoning regulations and and regulations on our everyday life that we don't even think about we we either accept or we don't know that they're there in the first place but they're part of building regulations and so on that you know i was thinking uh, only today actually i don't know if it's still true but uh, a friend of mine was looking at a an apartment in turak and and uh, said you know she she said oh, there's no washing machine. Oh, no, wait, it's in the kitchen. And I was like, oh, I'm pretty sure keeping your washing machine in the kitchen is illegal. Uh, and I actually don't know if that's true anymore. It used to be true. Well, I don't know. I've seen many, many washing machines in the kitchen. The flat Which I doesn't mean that it's not illegal. Well. Yeah. 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 Uh, so uh, I'm not Maybe sure it has that... to be a certain distance from other places, Possibly. you know, like dishes or something. Yeah. I don't know. But it, it, that's just an example of – and where you can, you can totally imagine what, how that came into being and how there's still – I think there's still a little bit of a stigma – would I, could I say that about having your washing machine in the kitchen, having your dirty laundry, you know, next to food preparation areas and stuff, whereas, you know, um, uh, 150 years ago to just, like, grab that random time period, people would not even have understood why that would be an issue, uh, let alone been able to do anything about it. So we have, yeah, so people living in... People will live increasingly in dense conditions, maybe in city centres or, or, you know, or wherever, but they... Uh, they're kind of compelled, and I think on some basic level, where we're, we're socially educated into understanding, you know, a little bit better than um, our ancestors about how things, uh, how how disease spreads. That said, um, it's and it's one of the things that people often talk about with the anti-vaxxers and so on that they anti-vaxxers are, can afford to be, whatever their other crazy uh, ideas are. Um, they they kind of they'll say, well, those diseases don't exist anymore. We don't need to be uh, inoculated against them. And I, and I think there's that, that same kind of thinking with what I have noticed and other people have noticed, and I'm sure we've all noticed, the, the propensity for people to just not wash their hands after they leave a, a public toilet or whatever. There's the, the fact that people are so, bl- have been, are so blasé about these things. Well, you know, I think I've noticed that, um, I mean, I'm spending more time washing my hands, like more time, you know, you sort of count to 20 or something to wash your hands with soap and all those things that maybe should have been happening all along. Yeah. Uh, but well, that Dylan more and I have often talked more... about the state of your yeah. hands, Carly. We have often have been looking over there and <laughs> yeah, I'm passing just notes across the desk. On them now. Sit on hang them on, I shouldn't even sit on them. The hang on, yeah, I don't yeah. know what to do with yeah. my you hands. Notice, you notice everything you're touching, though, I'm finding. Yeah. Like, like, what have yeah. I touched since I left the house, yeah. you know, um, the tram yeah. rail or whatever it might it's be. It's just a new headspace, isn't it? We're speaking with Dave Nichols. He's Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning at University of Melbourne. He's an urban planning historian and we're talking about the built environment and how it's been shaped, really, by 
disease and disease prevention. And I was thinking, I was watching one of the videos online of um, people in Italy in those kind of six or eight story oh, yeah. uh, streets singing together, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, how, you know, living in those dense environments, very common in European cities and around the world. Um, our, we don't really have that sort of high rise that much in Melbourne where you could stick your head out the window and, and, and sing together. And I um, shame, isn't it? Well, I mean, because we've got such high rise and and windows. I, I think it's you'd, a shame. Like, you don't like think that? we sing well enough. Yeah. That's what you think. Isn't no, it? I don't know. I don't know. Would you like? <laughs> would you like to do rounds? Would you like to have a kind of a? Well, I don't. I'm, how, what, oh, look, what songs I'm would you sing? Entirely possible. What songs does everyone know? I, I probably would listen. It's true. Anthem. I would listen. <laughs> I would encourage my kids to pull out the saxophone, maybe. Oh, know. so okay. So you're with going. The, you're going at next level. It's not just with singing. the neighbours like, like that. I go in a company. They're singing. A company. But them. our cities aren't designed necessarily. Once you're inside, you're inside. Yeah, like you're not inside outside. Yes. No, that's right. Mm. Exactly. This is what I'm saying about the you know Melbourne or, or Australian cities. The major Australian cities are suburban cities, and that they are absolutely you know it's all it all comes back to that. They're created to not be communal. One of the reasons they're created to not be communal is because things. of disease spread. Well, what what role has this played in the development of kind of class identity and so on in Australia and different suburbs being undesirable and, and people kind of living in the slums of the city as being mm. sort of dirty classes mm. and that, that thing? Do you see a really uh, clear link between public health and disease and the way that class has developed? Yeah, there's and, – and that's partly because – you know, capitalism requires uh, a, a fluid and available working, you know, unskilled and inverted commas working population. So uh, this, the centre of the city until, you know, even until probably the 80s really, there was, there was a lot of small manufacturing concerns and so on. There was a lot of, a lot of small factories. Um, I mean, God, I moved back to Melbourne from Sydney in the mid-90s and there were still quite a few like little little industrial concerns that dotted around the, the inner city. I guess they were just being finally phased out. So so there was um, – and that's – you know, so I suppose that kind of unskilled, uh, you know, working-class population – I hate that word unskilled. It really uh, riles me, but we know what it means. And, um, and similarly, you would have uh, noxious industries in uh, the inner west, like Footscray and so on. I mean, that's partly because – the um, I mean that's sort of a that's a quirk of Melbourne history. The Maribyrnong River was undrinkable water, so it was salt water. So it might as well be a sewer. So you know it might as well we might as well put all the tanneries and other uh, uh, you know I'll use the word noxious again noxious industries on alongside the banks of the, of that river and and Footscray develops in that certain way. And there's there's other factors as well as the geology of the city as well. But the um, that's yeah that's absolutely how that thing you know and one thing leads to another and it only takes you know a few a few decades of development in a particular direction for something to be branded that way forever mm. now in the 19th century you have that um belief in you know the the pre-bacterial or viral disease theory was um the theory of miasma which was the notion that noxious gas gases caused um disease and so there's there's a strong um, you know, uh, belief that if you're exposed to things that smell bad, I mean, it makes you know, it totally makes sense, doesn't it? Because we know that now we know that things that smell bad often smell bad because it's decaying matter. Um, at that stage, it was it was believed it was uh, it was this miasma um, theory, but but that also goes hand in hand with the notion of oh, I, oh, I live next door to this factory, it's, it smells terrible. You know, it's a it's an awful 
uh, place, I mean, it would be an awful place to live anyway, but it's also seen as like a kind of a place where you, you can catch disease from the actual, um, you know, the, the unpleasant odour. Mm. So there's, you know, all of those factors come into play. And, yeah, like absolutely, you know, we live in, living in this city, and it's true of most cities, we live ab- every day with the with a series of footprints that are deci- decided, you know, 100 more than 100 years ago, 100, 200 years ago, when, you know, a particular uh, decision is made to establish a particular, you know, either a particular environment, a particular, let's say, industry, a particular, um, um, you know, residential place that's going to be a beautiful residential place that beautiful people are going to want to live in, that kind of stuff. So do you think COVID-19 and this, you know, global response to it is is going to change the way that we think about urban planning into the future and the way we design cities? Or is our understanding about, you know, disease spread and so on already there, so it won't really mm. change that much? It's, it's really, and I mean, it's really interesting to think this is something that um, I think we can just like watch and, and learn from what we see. That the one that, you know, I think partly because it's pretty much 100 years ago, people talk a lot about the Spanish flu, and there's a there's a whole lot of things that are coming back right now today that were uh, instituted uh, for the to stop the spread of the Spanish flu, um, as it was known. Such as, uh, well, stopping people from uh, mingling. They closed the, the state borders, which you know in, in Australia. Yes, in Australia, which that. seems seems kind of. I mean, that seems. Kind of, I suppose there was a reason, but I think it was. It'd be more difficult about, for Albury Wodonga. Well, wouldn't it just? Yeah. Um, I think that. Um, I think part of it was just to, like, to stop people moving from place to place, like stop stop going from one city to another and, and stuff like that. Uh, so it wasn't, it, you know, the fact that they were state borders was not so relevant. I think there was there was limitations to movement. People weren't um, were prohibited from going out. Um, they they were able to go to church, which which I guess was uh, crucial, um, uh, but they had to wear face masks. So all of those all of those kinds of things that you know still you know prevail in the moment. But that's yeah we do you know in a way we know more, but we are um, uh, there's fascinating stuff in today's paper about. Doctors saying, "Well, should everyone stay at home, or should everyone go out?" And some doctors are saying, "Well, if if everyone stays at home, it'll it'll cause uh, you know uh, uh, amazing damage to the economy." To which I immediately think, "Well, you know, you're a doctor, like <laughs> just talk Sting, about what's not field." <laughs> but that, and it, even though we're we're given health advice, and you can really go and so- search out the official channels and find out what it is, and find out from your workplace and mm. things like this, right? But even so. There is still um, a feeling of of indecision and ambiguity and wondering going on, isn't there? Uh, absolutely, isn't it? And, and do look, you think is that the right advice? Is that going to change well, in five minutes? It's been inconsistent too, so that's yeah, yeah. part of it. Look in this and in this. No, that's yeah. I mean, I think people don't know. I was thinking today about the toilet paper thing, which is um, kind of hilarious, bizarre, and disturbing all at once. And I guess there's a, there'd be a theory. There'd be, there'd be a case for saying that one of the reasons people are doing this is because they have no particular faith in, in the, I'm going to say the federal government, you know, which is uh, bumbles its way through, bumbled its way through the, fire, the, the bushfire thing, is bumbling its way through this, seemingly being very self-serving. And, um, you know, I saw Greg Hunt on Insiders yesterday, unable to, you know, just, you know, practising his serious furrowed brow, but not much more. And... I can sort of imagine, you know, even though the toilet paper, why fixate on that? I don't know, although partly I guess it's because 
one thing we do know is there's no toilet paper in the supermarkets. So, you know, if you see some, you're going to grab some and, and run away. But um, it's, I think maybe it's, it's just as kind of a, it's a cipher for people's uh, unease and inability to understand the, the long-term consequence. Understands the wrong word. None of us know what the long-term consequences are or, or how long this is going to go. It's one thing so you can on. control is buy a whole heap of toilet paper. And... In, in, and I think that is true, and I think I've actually read someone saying that. I think yeah. it might have been Waleed Ali, potentially. I it think might you have been, were correct. I think behavioural scientists right. are saying yeah. it as well. But, I mean, before we let you go, um, mm. back out into the, I'm ready. I may the world outside our studio, <laughs> yeah. um, are you feeling confident about, about Melbourne and our urban planning? I mean, I'm, I, I, I am. I'm feeling pretty good. I think that there are okay. So we know that the state the state government has just uh, declared a state of emergency. Um, I think that you know we're we're in a we're in a good situation in a number of ways in this nation, partly because of that very thing that I started off talking about. I mean, we 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 do have the capacity to live to to stay away from each other if that's what's needed. Um, there's a whole lot of things about you know people on public transport and you know all of that kind of stuff. People being uh, crowded together, which is clearly problematic. Um, I th- so you know if we're going to talk about the way that people use the infrastructure and so on, well, I, I can see that that's the kind of thing that that disease um, a disease like this thrives on. We we haven't been you know we haven't had to deal with something like this for a really really long time. Not only that, we haven't really had to deal with like when I say we, I mean before my before I was born, we haven't had we haven't. Melbourne hasn't had to deal with something like this for for a century, and and so you know people will understandably get a little bit you know um, relaxed and comfortable about it as a as an issue. So there's you know in that sense um, there's kind of you know ad hoc measures have to be brought into play. But I think that you know you know the state government state governments generally in this country are actually um, doing well, obviously it'd be hard. Um, to do a worse job than the federal, but they but they're doing a pretty decent job, and I think they're lucky in the sense that every state government only has to really has one big city, so every state only has a has one massive city to deal with. So there's, um, in that sense, it's kind of simplified. Yeah, I think. Um, uh, I'm sure everything's going to be fine. Don't yeah. quote me on that. I mean, look, the numbers are quite <laughs> low at the moment, so let's hope they stay that way. Thanks so much for coming uh, in, Dave. Thank um, you. Hopefully catch you in a month yep. in the studio. Ooh, yeah, could happen. Um, Dave Nichols, Senior Lecturer Urban Planning at University of Melbourne. He's heading over there now. I am. See you soon. Bye. Triple. Ah. And it wasn't so long ago, climate change, the fires, the loss of biodiversity were the main topics of conversation, well, definitely with me and my friends and family. Right now, COVID-19 is understandably what many of us are concerned with, but whether we choose to speak about our hopes and fears with those around us or not, many of us are contending with the existential issues we're facing and what our personal responsibilities are towards them. Um, We all have skin in the game, I guess, especially those with children. And for the monthly, James Button has gone there. He's spoken to a range of people for an article called The Climate Interviews, asking them how, if at all, climate change enters their minds. It's a stunning piece of writing and we're pleased to have him with us by phone. Um, Thanks for being there, James. 
Hi, Katie. Hi, John. It's great to be here. Hi, James. And it struck me reading your piece um, over the weekend where there's talk of um, kind of looming you know, water shortages and whether we should be burying cans of food and that sort of thing. These are considerations we're talking about and thinking about for other reasons at the moment. Um, I wonder if you feel at all with the, the kind of snapping out of complacency many of us have had to face with COVID-19, whether that might be priming us for more radical action on climate change. Yeah, it's amazing, John. I've been thinking that. Uh, coronavirus seems like a dress rehearsal, if you like, for what we might have to um, experience at some point. I hope not, but uh, it's possible with, with climate change down the road. And maybe there's some uh, good news here. I mean, if, if, we, um, if we see that we can actually um, respond uh, well to to a very difficult situation, the one presented by COVID-19, it might actually give us some sense of optimism that we can deal with the radical changes that I think we are going to have to make to address climate change at some point. So, you know, let's, let's hope that good news comes out of this. Yeah, let's hope. And I mean, you interviewed around 30 people for your essay and some of them were already reconsidering things like having children and I suppose you know when we're also talking about climate change in an era of of pandemic as well um, yeah are you rethinking some of those conversations whether this current situation would reinforce those feelings or, or not? Yeah it's interesting Carla I think that um, uh, look for some people this is going to be very alarming there's, there's no doubt there's a sense that um, we've entered a time when you know, things that we once thought were uh, guaranteed and normal no longer are. And, um, you know, supermarkets having empty shelves, for example, you know, it's, it's, it's such a new thing for, for a lot of people. Um, as far as... I, I Look, I think coronavirus will pass. Um, it's a very serious issue. I'm not wishing to trivialise it at all, but it will pass. The climate issue is going to be with us for a very, very long time. And um, so I, I, I do think we have to keep our minds focused on that at, at some, to some degree. Um, and as I said before, ho- hoping that we can, we can see from this that, that, uh, that, that we can actually respond quite um, uh, collectively to this. And there's been a, a lot of writing about climate change and, uh, you know, transitioning our energy system and the like, and you canvass many authors um, in this particular piece, but it's sort of underpinned by these interviews you did with, for want of a better term, regular people. What's to be gained, do you think, from speaking to those in our community and, and cataloguing their thoughts in a piece such as this? What did you kind of want to achieve by, um, by having this piece published? That's a great question, Dylan. I wanted to get past the experts in a way, and while, while I do quote uh, people who are out there talking about these issues on a regular basis, I, I was really interested in the question of how climate change is changing the ordinary thoughts of ordinary people. You know, the thoughts you have in the shower or when you're walking the dog in the park or in the middle of the night, you know, and uh, to see whether we were living... In a, in a different time, or we were starting to live in a different time, such that uh, fears of, you know, really um, drastic kind of environmental and possibly political and social change were starting to, uh, you know, seep into people's minds. And I think uh, that approach 
sort of hadn't been done before where I, I just wanted to find out what um, what what those ordinary thoughts um, were amongst people and maybe go use that to think about, well, how can we respond? You know, are we all thinking similar things or are people thinking a whole range of different things or are they not thinking about climate change at all? And what's interesting there, of course, is that you get different responses from different groups uh, in society. So um, obviously people who are you know, living progressives, people living in the inner city, people who are more focused on the environment and climate change are very focused on climate change and that's becoming more alarming to them. But there are other groups in society who are not so focused on it and I, I think it's really important that people be respectful about understanding that people are at different points uh, in relating to this issue, but also trying to find ways to communicate across those divides that we now have and, uh, you know, realise that we're all in this together and we have to find a way to respond together. And, what, I mean, what did you find, um, James? I mean, I, I, it did stick out to me that, that some people, you know, think a lot about climate change, but they actually don't voice it to the people around them. Yes, Carly. What, what I found was that things have changed very fast in the last couple of years. Climate change has been uh, coming uh, like a, you know, like you could hear, hear the sound of the train coming down the track a long time ago. But I feel as if in the last two years there's been a, a real quickening of the temperature on this issue. And, and part of that, I think, is, um, you know, the the IPC reports, that Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, their reports have grown increasingly urgent in their language. Um, there's been the election of Donald Trump and a clear sense that America is not, at the moment, going to uh, be part of global uh, agreements on climate change. There's been a range of other reports that have had even more urgency in them than the IPCC reports. And so suddenly a bunch of people, especially people... In, let's, for want of a better word, say the inner city middle class have become very anxious about this issue. And particularly young women, I've noticed, have become very focused, young women in that group in particular, um, particularly around the time when they might be thinking about some, some of them um, having a child or, um, or know people who might be you know, thinking about this issue. They, they seem to particularly, a group particularly focused on this. Um, and... And yet how we respond to it differs. And a lot of people have focused on... Uh, I probably spoke either by email or on Facebook or in interviews with 150 people or connected with. And a lot of people were focused on issues like recycling plastic and, um, uh, you know, trying to shop, shop in an ecologically sound way at the supermarket. And in a way, I think uh, some of those... Um, some of those issues are a bit of a red herring because while plastic is a massive issue that we need to address, it's not really front and centre with climate change. Um, I think the most important thing is, is political action, of course, you know, um, but, but also to understand that uh, how much we emit is really a function of our income. You know, and the wealthier we are, the more people tend to emit, whether they're, you know, progressive or conservative. 
I think that, that's a really uh, interesting point you make, and that um, you know, of course, uh, climate change doesn't discriminate or, or you know isn't perpetrated by people, or emissions aren't, aren't kind of perpetrated by people on the left or right of the political spectrum. It's kind of income that dictates much more um, uh, pointedly the the amount of emissions you're putting out into the atmosphere. Why is there that sort of apparent disconnect that you note in your piece between our concern about climate change and what that looks? like in terms of you know potentially plastic pollution and that sort of thing and our willingness to actually you know legitimately change our ways to help reduce emissions and bring about larger change i think plastics plastics is a shocking uh problem (laughs) so people look at it and it's very visible dylan you know we see the pictures of you know uh, beer top rings being wrapped around a bird's neck or the great pacific garbage patch which is this huge collection of plastic, a lot of it fishing nets out in the Pacific. Like when I say huge, it's it's as big as um, New South Wales in size. Um, and, and people, I think, in a way have conflated those two issues for understandable reasons to some degree, because they both speak of a need to really change the way we live uh, in terms of uh, both the, how much we we emit, um, how much carbon we emit, but also how much waste we produce. And yet those two issues are also quite separate in, in, in ways. So I think it's understandable that people have conflated them. It's, it's a very common thing around the world to conflate these two issues. Um, but I also think some of the issues are quite hard personally for us to confront. Flying, for example, if you uh, take a return trip to London... Uh, Australians already um, produce more um, emissions per head than just about any other country in the world. Uh, if you take a return flight to London, you probably, as an Australian, you probably use between a third and a half of your um, annual average emissions in that one flight. Uh, people love to travel. People don't want to give it up. <laughs> and And I think sometimes we tend to shy away from those difficult truths um, that it's it, it's uh, things that we like to do but are things that we um, you know find hard to uh, to renounce yeah and it's a, a blind spot for many people and I suppose as so many more planes around the world are grounded right now it is something that we can kind of think about we're speaking with uh, James Button and his essay the climate interviews is in the latest monthly and you can get it online as well and I wonder what you've learned you're a language person James and I wonder what you've learned about um, our responses to what I suppose can be called apocalyptic messaging even things like the climate emergency I mean how do we kind of in general respond to language like that that's a really important question because here's the paradox of it I think we do have an emergency. Uh, We uh, we do have a need to make profound changes to our society and to make them pretty quickly, if if what the scientists say is right. And everything that's happened so far, you know, is clear that, you know, they've been right all along, if anything, too conservative. However, there's no point going out to people who who are not... um, uh, fully, you know, across that sense that we're in an emergency and telling them in some kind of panicked way that it's an emergency. It, it makes people switch off. It even makes them hostile. I quote the social researcher Rebecca Huntley, who's about to publish a book on how to talk about climate change. And, and her research with 
people in the outer suburbs, in the western suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane, show that people actually very much push back against that kind of apocalyptic language. And so I don't think there's any point in speaking about climate change in that way to people who, who resist that. And I think it's really important for all of us, not just for, for, for those people I described, but for all of us to see that we can still act. There is still, there's certainly still hope. There's certainly things we can do. Um, you know, it really depends on what humans do now. And so anything that shows that we can uh, make changes, that there are really substantial uh, changes we can make to basic things we do, like making steel, uh, making aluminium, um, over time, the cars we drive, you know, you know there's a lot of uh, optimistic things that we can do, that, and I think they should be front and centre in any way that we talk to people about climate change. It's interesting too, um, you note in your piece, James, that uh, climate change has taken on much greater significance right at the point where collective political action has really declined. We've also seen, though, um, you know, a real upsurge in in political action and collective action around, you know, rallies, um, uh, the climate rallies and so on and the school strikes and that sort of thing. I mean, so that's sort of happening. But do we need to change the way, um, I, I guess, activists or people who have a lot of concern about this approach this issue? to ensure that those who wouldn't ordinarily go out into the streets are kind of brought into the tent and can engage with the issue in a way that isn't sort of as loaded as it may be when there's terms such as climate emergency being used to try to convince people? In a way, yes, Gillen, but I also think uh, movements of this kind need to have many different shades. And and I think there being some kind of radical, uh, uh, you know, if you like, vanguard to the movement is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm. You know, I, I, I don't know about occupying, um, you know, the uh, you know the crossroads of major cities and blocking them when people are trying to get home. I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have a fixed view on that. I can see why that would really, uh, you know, uh, frustrate a lot of people. I also think sometimes you have to be. Um, pig-headed to get your message out, you know. So I, I think what I'd like to see, though, is a movement that's really broad, that includes moderate people on the conservative side of politics. Um, in fact, I think it's essential that we have, um, you know, a movement that can speak to such a wide range of people. I don't think this is a conventional left-right political issue. Mm. I think it's far more existential than that. The time we have to address it, is 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 quite short, um, and so you know we really need to be definitely confronting climate deniers in in positions of power. That's really important um, to absolutely um, take the fight up to them. But I also think there are there are moderate people on um, uh, the conservative side of politics who who, who need to be um, you know brought in, ideally, into a, into a really big movement. And, in fact, the larger the movement is, the more we have the capacity to do the kind of big things that I think we're going to need to do. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's going to have all sorts of faces going. And I think, uh, I mean, it's unusual in many ways how partisan climate has become, climate and energy has become in Australia and has been for some time. But where we're not unusual around the world is having really active young people. And did you find when talking across the generations, James, that 
young people and and older generations uh, think differently and respond differently to climate change and what it kind of um, represents for our future? I did, Kalia. I mean, of course, one can't generalise. There are young people who are not focused on the issue and there are older people you know, people in their 80s and 90s even, who are very focused on the issue. But I was really struck by a conversation I had with my son one night who's, who's not, you know, he, he keeps up with the news, but he's not a political guy. You know, we, he came into town and we were, we were having some dumplings in the city and he, he said, Dad, I'm really worried about climate change. And, and I said, oh, why? He said, I've been reading about it all day online. And, uh, um, and it sort of struck me then... And we talked about it for a couple of hours, and I was really struck as a parent, like, what do I say to him? Um, how do I, you know, uh, be honest and uh, but um, it's show that there is optimism without bullshitting him, if you like? And But what, what really struck me was just how intensely he felt this issue in this moment, and that that was somehow related to his age. He's 24 years old, and... Um, it, it's partly the issue of um, that he has much more life ahead of him than I do, but I think it's also when you're young, you have this intense, um, I say in the piece, libidinous attitude to life. And, uh, you know, climate change violates that sense of the promise of what's ahead of us. And so I really, um, I think I understand, I'm not a young person, but I, I think I understand why it's such a powerful issue for for so many young people, um, I happened to be in the, in the town of Castlemaine uh, in December and I saw a young people's rally there and there, were, there was a, a, a boy of 10 or 11-year-old speaking, a girl of 12 or 13, and it was very moving to hear, hear them talk about this issue. And, I mean, this is, you know, in many ways a really heavy and, and I imagine quite difficult article to have um, written and, and kind of embarked upon. You're going around having these lengthy conversations with people around, you know, essentially kind of what's being touted as an existential threat and, and despair in, in the face of the looming climate crisis. What did you sort of get out of those conversations and what did your subjects get out of speaking honestly and, and transparently about, um, you know, the way that you and, and they feel about climate change? Yeah, it is often a heavy conversation. Del and I was um, with a group of six young women in Armadale, um, the Melbourne suburb, quite a quite a well-to-do suburb. These were all people who had just had a child or um, had a child, say, two years earlier. And, oh, God, I was struck by the, the levels of emotion in that room, you know, when people were talking about it. Um, it still sort of comes back to me even now, you know, just... Um, you know, the woman who organised the meeting said at the start, look, I just want to tell you that, give you a warning, some of us are going to cry. And, you know, being young mothers and having, you know, very young children had so focused the minds of these um, young women on, on the issue. And it, you used the word existential. It was, it was clearly existential for them. And... Uh, you know, there was just so much emotion in that room and that was distressing at one level, but it also gave me some hope because it made me think if this, if the kind of energy and force in this room could be channeled into political action on this issue, now there's no end to the power that that could be, you know. Um, now, of course, it's, um, it's, it's a small group of people who in this particular case would be more on the progressive side, 
But I think over time that will grow as people become aware of the um, the threat that we face. So, I, so, and I think to answer the second part of your question, I think being together as a group of six and talking about it, I think was valuable for them as well. You know, just to have that sense of that, that people like them shared shared those thoughts and they weren't thinking them alone. Yeah, and I think that sense of hope. I mean, I. I suppose what I've really taken from your essay, James, is that hope is a driver of change and that if we are going to um, bring about a massive transition or um, and that we collectively deal with what climate change presents us with, then hope is what's going to do it, not, not fear. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, somebody said to me, you know, Martin Luther King's, famous speech is, I have a dream. If not, I have a nightmare. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I think hope is not the only thing that you need. Um, uh, you also need a sense of urgency. Um, uh, you need a sense of both probably of ferocity and anger at some level, but also of kindness and empathy as well. Um, all those things count. And also, Carl, you're having a sense of we just don't know you know, there are some bleak signs of where we're heading. There's no doubt. If we keep on the current path, we're heading to a four-degree um, warmer world by the end of this century. That is not a world that humans have ever lived in before. But there are also a range of views about, about you know, where we are, and, and there are also clear paths and scenarios of, you know, things that we can do, you know, as, as societies and, and as individuals. And so I think it's really... I, I was struck by the, the people who had got involved, to return to your earlier point, Dylan, about getting involved in political action, those people who had joined groups like um, Extinction Rebellion and Climate for Change... Um, uh, and they tended to get involved in those groups rather than in mainstream political parties. But, but they did have a greater sense of purpose and optimism um, in the way that they communicated this issue to me. So I think Greta Thunberg said, you know, when you act, hope opens up. So it's not like, oh, do I have hope or don't I have hope? What should I do? Because by acting, that actually in itself generates hope. Thanks so much for spending so much time with us, James. Uh, and we definitely recommend your essay to listeners, The Climate Interviews. You can find it in the latest monthly and you can also find it online. And it's um, great talking to you. Thanks, Carly. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks. Enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Um, James Button there, um, writer, and um, you can catch his books as well in um, bookstores near you. But The Climate Interviews, uh, well worth a read. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.